Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. We're taping this on a Wednesday, so you know what that means. You know, on Wednesdays during the Major League Baseball season, that means Fangraphs John Taylor is here as he is every single Wednesday afternoon. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, John, are you ready for today in baseball history, September 1st? Yes. Mm, where do you think we're going? What, what is your guess? Where am I going? Where am I going? Uh, the best baseball history is pre-1935, so I'm going to guess there. You are correct. 1890. Wow. On Labor Day at Brooklyn's Washington Park, the bridegrooms... Later known as the Dodgers. People forget they were the bridegrooms. Yes. Before the Dodgers. When all things. three games against Pittsburgh in the first triple header ever played. This today is the first time they ever played a triple header. The home team sweeps the visiting Okay, I'm gonna butcher this. A how would you pronounce this? A L L E G H E N Y S. The Alleghenies. Alleghenies. Who will become the, the Pirates the next yep. season. Mm-hmm. The Pittsburgh Alleghenies soon to become the Pirates, yeah, because yeah, the Pirates, yeah, were late, late nineteenth century. Um, I'm going to assume that a triple header in the year 1890 <laughs> took so, took approximately four hours to play. <laughs> what I'm do you think sure that is, John? You can get a 19th century triple header done before your average Red Sox Giants game from like 20 years ago, or even now, I guess. Or just your Although average Yankees Red Sox game Sox now. Don't actually, have a team because of COVID, so. Yeah, that's not good. Um, also not good. Joe Rogan's Instagram. Oh no, are we going there? No, we're not going there. But okay, but, wait. But... I, actually, I'm curious since you since you referenced the fact that they were formerly known as uh, mm-hmm. the Brooklyn Bridegrooms before becoming the Brooklyn Dodgers. I've always enjoyed my favorite. I think former Brooklyn uh, Dodgers slash former Los Angeles Dodgers last or er, team name is the one they became right after the Bridegrooms, the Superbas. Oh, is that true? Yes. What is the mascot? What is a Superba? Uh, I'm not even entirely sure what a Superba is, but I'm I'm looking it up now because I I I, I was trying to remember if the Superbas were the what, what the Dodgers became, or if they were the um, the Federal League team. But I remember that just now that was the Tip Tops. So the Brooklyn Superbas were called that. So I'm gonna t- take some Wikipedia here. In 1899, most of the original old Baltimore Orioles National League stars from the legendary Maryland club, which earlier won three consecutive championships in 1894, 95, and 96, were moved to the Grays slash bridegrooms by the ownership partner in both teams, along with famed Orioles manager Ned Hanlon, who became the club's new manager in New York, Brooklyn, under majority owner Charlie Ebbets. The new combined team was dubbed the Brooklyn Superbas by the press, inspired by the popular circus act, the Hanlon's Superba. Mm. So the Hanlons, or the Hanlon Lees, rather, mm-hmm. was a performing group of three brothers, George, William, and Alfred, who were wards of a man named John Lees, so very Batman and Robin. Uh, actually, there were six brothers who were all acrobats. Uh, after John Lees died, the, ha- the three oldest Hanlons returned to England and listed their younger brothers and rechristened themselves the Hanlon Lees in honor of their fallen friend and instructor. So for a brief period of time, the team, the baseball team in Brooklyn was named after a six-brother tra- uh, acrobatic circus act. 
There you go. Early, late 19th century, early 20th century baseball is just the funniest stuff. Like this, this Wikipedia includes the art. This Wikipedia article includes the line: "The middle years of the decade, the 1890s, were disappointing for Brooklyn. A slump." The Spalding Guide, which I assume is an old style sporting news, rather primly ascribed to management tolerating drunkenness among the players. You got to do it. Also, the reason they were called the bridegrooms was mm-hmm. because six players got married during the 1888 season. Nah. Yes, it is. That's incredible. Yes. Very literal. Um, do you know the what today is? The team's legal name, though, was the Brooklyn Baseball Club. <laughs> they did not become the Dodgers until 1932. That's tremendous. Um, also, do you know what today is that happened in 2010? What happened in 2010? Um... Well, I was alive. That's correct. Other than that, I have no idea. Okay. I'm going to read you a quote, and you're going to tell me who this is. This is the major leagues. This is not college anymore. You're not on scholarship. You're being paid to do the job, and guys depend on you. And I think it's unfortunate that the Nationals and the team are in a situation where here, where this kid now, he feels any kind of arm pain. He's going to call you out. You give these guys, today's players, 15 million bucks. Please. Get your butt out there and play every fifth day. I'm still I'm still lost here. Rob Dibble. Rob uh, Dibble. Oh God, the Dibbler. He was fired after after this. The Nationals. Yeah, and and this was. Were, do you know which pitcher he's talking about here? Strasburg. Yep. I mean, yeah. There's if if the comment is coming a from Rob Dibble and b is about a player's toughness, then it is. It is no. There's no way he's talking about anyone other than than Steven Strasburg. I remember during the early years of the Nationals when they first came to DC, because uh, he was he he was their color guy for the first few seasons, and yeah, Rob Rob Dibble's baseball mind has not evolved past I believe 1994, and really, if it, I'd be amazed if it made it even that far. So none of that surprises me. There you go. There you go. Um, before we get into some actual baseball conversation, some I shouldn't say actual, some some recent, some current baseball right. conversation. Don't forget, folks, you can listen to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Just look up Chase Thomas Podcast and you'll find this. John and I do this every single Wednesday during the MLB season. Go subscribe to Fangraphs.com if you have not already to read all the great writers uh, on Fangraphs.com where John edits the social, all that good stuff. Um, also, subscribe to the Sports Renaissance Man, where I'm writing every single day on, you guessed it, sports, by going to sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. If you like listening to John and I, and you like listening to the podcast in general, and you're listening on Apple, please leave this show a five-star rating and a review, and become a patron on patreon.com slash chase thomas writer. Also, email us if you have any questions for John and I during the week. On anything Major League Baseball, you can email us at chasethomaspodcast at gmail.com and we'll read it on this very show. John, the Yankees, the bullpen, it's bad. And it's getting worse because Britain is now gone for the year. There's questions about Chapman and if he can handle being a closer at this point. How concerned are you about the Yankees in a in a wild card situation where they need a bullpen? Uh, what 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 do you make of Britain going down for the year and... The, the state of the Yankees bullpen. Uh, I'm not worried. For one, Britain was clearly never right all year. So on the one hand, on paper, it's a bigger loss than it is in reality. I think obviously the best scenario for the Yankees would have been to get Zach Britton back healthy and whole. That wasn't going to happen. So it's 
generally better, I think, for a team just to have any healthy reliever than a guy pitching at whatever percentage Britain was capable of, even if he's Zach Britton and the other guy is uh, whoever. I, I think some of that is going to depend on Chapman rebounding from where he was. Obviously, he's been a different pitcher post the sticky stuff ban, and he also had to spend some time on the injured list, so that is an issue. But the good thing for the Yankees is between... So first of all, if they do, if they it is the wild card game that they play and they don't win the division for starters, assuming they line up their their pitching correctly, the starter is going to be Garrett Cole. So the Yankees don't really have to worry about having to go to the bullpen. I think too heavy because I think they can guarantee or they feel comfortable with, barring something either a terrible start or an injury, that Cole is going to give them at least five solid innings. From there, obviously, you have the option to take uh, whichever starters you won't be using in the division series, which in the case of the Yankees would probably be be some combination of Corey Kluber, Andrew Haney, and Nestor Cortez as backup for Cole if you need someone to take more than two innings. But the really the real value to the Yankees bullpen is the the existence and adaptability of two guys in particular, Chad Green and Jonathan Loisega, both of whom have filled multi-inning roles in the bullpen before. Green obviously is a veteran of this. Loisega has kind of evolved into a kind of honestly better version of him so far. So those are two guys I think Aaron Boone would feel very comfortable with asking to get anywhere from four to six outs apiece. So if you look at it that way, that is really anywhere from eight to 12 outs between your two top non-Chapman relievers. If you're banking on at least 15 or so from Cole, even if you get only uh, two innings, an inning apiece from Green and Loisaga, you still only need one inning to, or two, two innings at max. And if Cole can go six, you really just need the one. So I don't worry about the Yankees bullpen with regards to the wild card game. The division series obviously would be a different task for starters. They're not going to have Cole until at least game three for second. Uh, they're not going to have the luxury of being able to use Green and Loisega for multi-inning outings every time out. They're going to need uh, guys like Lucas Lutke, Wandy Peralta to step up. They're probably going to need uh, Cortez to continue his nice run. But the other option, too, is that the Yankees have all these really good young arms down in their minor league system. Uh, Luis Gill, Davey Garcia, um, they got Clay, oh, Clay Holmes isn't a young arm, but they got Clay Holmes in the Pirates, and he's a very good arm. He's been a very good arm for them so as well. Albert Abreu, you know, there there are options they have if they want to bring up young guys that they feel can just kind of grip it and rip in the back of the bullpen if they do want someone like that. All of the way the Blue Jays used uh, Nate Pearson last year in their in their division series, and probably the way they're going to use him again now that they've called him back up for the rest of the season and in October if they get there. So, yeah, I, I don't worry about the Yankees' bullpen. I think if the Yankees have a real issue right now, it is, as it has continued to be, starting pitching depth behind Garrett Cole, uh, or at least not in terms of starting pitching depth, but just do they have a number two guy in that rotation right now to you know, make what is going to be that Game 1 Division Series start if they do win the wildcard game? Because right now that's an open, that's an open uh, competition, I would say, between or depending how they line up their rotation or how the rotation lines up. You know, it's your choice of is it Jamison Tyon, is it Jordan Montgomery, is it Corey Kluber if Kluber uh, looks better down the stretch. I don't know, but I if I'm the Yankees, I'm, I'm more concerned about that than I am about the bullpen, uh, particularly given, like I said, you, you do have two guys in the Lysaga and Green who can just soak up a lot of outs between the two of them at a, at a really elite level. You're, you're bullish on it. What, what are the odds that Brad Hand gets picked up by the Yankees? I think the odds are high that Brad Hand gets picked up by someone. I'd be kind of amazed if the if the Red Sox don't pick him up because they have, mm. by my count, three relievers at the moment. Um, I don't really think the Yankees are going to bother, though. For starters, Hand is a lefty, and they already have uh, plenty of lefties in that bullpen. Chapman, Lutke, Peralta, Cortez, Haney will almost certainly be in the bullpen when if he makes the playoff roster. So 
Uh, I don't think they need any more left-handed help. And also, Han just hasn't been particularly good. And I think, like, if you're the Yankees, I, I'd rather give those innings to guys who have already shown something. In particular, uh, Lukey and, and Peralta have been very good for them this year. Uh, or Lutke has. Peralta has been pretty peripheral lucky. But re- regardless, I, I don't really see the room for someone like him unless they really want a guy who can mop up, perhaps. I, I'm not sure. Interesting. We'll see. We shall see. Oh, well, let's just talk about it. Brad Hand cut by the Blue Jays. The Blue Jays, man, there was some optimism. Springer gets hurt again. It's just been a rough year for him with injuries. But, man, I don't know. The Blue Jays are really, really frustrating, and I can't imagine blue jay fans feel any differently because there's just so much young talent there they've done a lot right they probably should have added another starter or two um this winter but outside of that i mean it's really hard to be super critical of what the blue jays have been doing the last few years and obviously they developed at an elite level to this point but i don't know i i'm, I'm kind of bummed that the bullpen's kind of imploded that they don't have the horses to to finish this out it looks like it's gonna be the red Sox and the yankees fighting for that uh those last two wildcard spots and not I don't the Jays. know because here's the thing for me I this Red Sox team is circling the drain mm. right fast and they are now without they're going to be without Xander Bogarts for at least a few days they're without Kike Hernandez they're without half their bullpen who knows how many more people are going to get infected in that clubhouse and and force them to make some weird roster moves or necessary I suppose which is obviously good for the Blue Jays, who at this point are only four and a half games behind Boston in the standings and certainly have the ability to to get higher than that. The other thing working in Toronto's favor is that aside from Boston and Oakland, there's really no other competition for the second wild card. I mean, yes, they are behind the Mariners right now by a game and a half, but I think true talent-wise, obviously the, the Blue Jays are a better team than the Seattle Mariners, and I don't really think that there's anyone who's going to argue that one way or the other. And regardless, if your worst, if your top competition for that spot is the Mariners and an A's team that has also really been struggling of late, I don't, say, I don't think you can really write the Blue Jays off that well. I mean, or that that quickly. I will say that they do have the trouble that they have a weaker schedule going forward than the Red Sox do, um, or they have a tougher schedule, sorry, going forward than the Red Sox do. They have a lot of games I think still left with the Yankees. Um, they also have, but they have, the A's and Mariners also have a roughly equally tough schedule. So there is that. Um, I think obviously any any division hopes are pretty well gone at this point, but I wouldn't say that the I wouldn't say that the Blue Jays are finished quite yet. But I, I think you're right though; it is still disappointing, and I think we talked about this before that you know this is a lot of people came into this season feeling like Toronto was if not a dark horse playoff team, then just a legitimate playoff team, and I felt that too. They had the offense; I thought they had a decent rotation. My concern was always going to be the bullpen and. That has played out. Their bullpen is very, very bad, aside from Jordan Romano. And that is probably going to be, even if they do make the playoffs, is probably going to be uh, a really serious issue that I'm not entirely sure how they how they solve. The other problem, of course, right now is that Hyunjin Ryu has been terrible all season. Not terrible, but he has not been himself. He has been pretty much average. I Raise your hand if you, if you thought Steven Matz was going to have a better season for the Blue Jays than, than Hyunjin Ryu is. They actually have the, exactly the same FIP, too. Um, I mean, maybe having Nate Pearson back, or maybe having Nate Pearson in the bullpen helps. I, you know, maybe well, I imagine they probably want to start Alec Manoa, but that's another option anyway. But yeah, the other thing we talked about is that this is by no means the Blue Jays' only window. They are obviously very well set up for the future. They're only going to lose Marcus Semyon from their lineup uh, next season, and maybe Randall Grichuk. I'm actually not 100 percent sure, but if they lose Grichuk, that's obviously something they can live without. 
certainly I think if you want to kind of figure out what the Blue Jays kind of need to figure out for next season, I think part of it is uh, there are a couple guys who they have who have underperformed, specifically Lourdes Gurriel and Kevin Biggio have been pretty – I mean, both have had, I believe, injury issues, Biggio especially, but they need to figure out what's kind of gone on there. They need to figure out, I think, Bo Bichette is not taking a step back, but I don't think he's taken the same step forward that certainly you've seen from Vlad Jr., but on a lesser level you've seen as well from – Oh, I guess actually just right now it is Vlad Jr. I guess that's the other thing, that the young guys have not really taken that full step together forward, I think, that Toronto was hoping to see. When you do have Bichette having a a good, a decent enough season, when your Guriel's, Guriel's been league average, Biggio's been below that, uh, Rowdy Telez, obviously not a big part of their future, but is gone anyway. Alejandro Kirk has been fine, but certainly not a guy they're going to count on long term. Uh, and of course, they just had to move Austin Martin to Minnesota and part of getting Jose Barrios. Who actually I should forgot Barrios is also in that roster. So, you know, Ray Barrios, Manoa is a pretty good one, two, three for the postseason if they can get there. But regardless, leaving the postseason aside, this team is in good shape for next year, too. It's just going to be a matter of, you know, can those young guys continue to step forward and really, really, really just concentrating on, I think, especially pitching depth and just depth overall. I think pitching depth is a big one. But I also think you've seen the need for lineup depth because, you know, the, this is a team that should not have to resort to, you know, pulling out Santiago Espinal and Joe Panic and uh, whatever a Jared Hoying is. Mm. And now they have Gerard Dyson on board, which not real, but I mean, it's September, I guess. But either way, they seem to have some injury issues. There's some depth stuff they got to figure out. But I think they're very much in, uh, I think they're very much, you know, they're, they're going to be in good, they're going to be in good shape for next year. I think so. I think so. Um, at Rock Kabako of Nassanon earlier today, and you're not going to believe this, John. What do What do I love more than anything else on this planet? Uh, Tennessee. I do love Tennessee. What a great state. What a great university. Best university in the in the nation. People forget. I'll be in Neyland tomorrow night for the opener. I'll send you a bunch of bunch of video, John, of what's going on and the vibe and what you're missing out in New York what you're missing out in the college football experience. We got to get you down here at some point. That's my goal is to get you down for either a Tennessee volunteer game or a Tennessee Smokies game. Are the Smokies double a for who are they for the Cubs, the double a Cubs. It's a cool spot. Go see Dollywood. We're all pro Dolly Parton here. Big Dolly Parton guy on this podcast, but um, there's reason. Oh, right. Orioles. That's that's, that was the the main point. I was going to say, where is, where eventually is this going? The Baltimore Orioles. We were talking about the okay. Orioles because I'm just so fascinated by the Orioles. But I think they're the only team that's just like, oh, yeah, they're kind of out. But the Blue Jays are going to run into the problem where it's like, if they were in the Central, are they the best team in the AL Central this year? If they play an AL Central schedule? No. Okay. No, the Orioles are terrible no matter what. No, 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 no. I'm not saying the Orioles, the Blue Jays. Oh, Blue Jays. Oh, yeah, sure. See, that's what I'm saying. Maybe, the I don't, Blue- I mean, uh, let, well, How about this? NL East. I mean, that's, that's tough. It's always tough when you do stuff like that because, you know, who's to say that the Blue Jays play exactly... I mean, it's, as Michael Kay always misuses it on the Yes broadcast, it, the fallacy of the predetermined outcome. Yeah. Which is to say, you know, it's a bad division, so if you put a team that's good in a tough division in the bad division, that good team will be better. More likely not sure. I mean, if you get to play the this year's Tigers, Royals, and Twins over and over again, that probably helps. Yep. Or if you get to play the, Nash, the current Nationals and the Marlins and the disintegrating Mets... But at the same time, I mean, the the Blue Jays have gotten a bunch of games against the Orioles. Uh, they've gotten plenty of games against the second-half Red Sox, who are one of the worst teams in baseball at the moment. Um, they got plenty of games against the first-half Yankees, who were a mess through and through. 
you know, Toronto has had opportunities and they've been able to take advantage of some of them. But I, I don't know. If, if you're a Blue Jays fan, I don't know how you look at the season and go. I mean, yeah, you're going to finish above 500 and still maybe at best third place. And that's really, really frustrating, I have to imagine. But at the same time, you had your chances. You had your opportunities. And more importantly, it's not as if the bad parts of this team suddenly wouldn't be bad if you were in the AL Central. The bullpen is still bad. There are still injury issues. There are still rotation depth issues. None of that really changes, you know, no matter where you put the Blue Jays. I, I think, yeah, it's it's the unfortunate reality that you do have to deal with the Yankees and the Rays and the Red Sox. But, hey, the Rays, look at it this way. The Rays have to deal with the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Blue Jays, and they're eight games up in the division. So, which, again, the Rays just, I, 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 I don't know what to do about them anymore, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Nats promoted one of their top, top prospects this week. Kyber, Kyber, is it Kyber? Kybert, Kybert. What is with these names? Carter Kyboom, Kybert Ruiz. Um, what do we, what do we know? What do you like? Is there a reason to be excited if you're a Nats fan? Sure. I mean, he was lost one of Los Angeles's top pitching prospects. Obviously, came over in the Max Scherzer Trey Turner deal in part mm-hmm. because LA has so many. Already has Will Smith in place, so they don't particularly need Kybert Ruiz anymore. And a guy like Ruiz is always most valuable in a situation like this. That doesn't mean they the, they just dumped him on the Nationals for nothing. Uh, he has a good reputation both defensively and offensively as a catcher. He's ranked top 50 prospect-wise, I believe, the last three years running in pretty much every major prospect publication. Uh, and this is a, this has been an issue, too, for the Nationals for the longest time, honestly, that they have not really had a catcher of any true... They've neither had a franchise catcher nor even a particularly good catcher uh, since the last days of Wilson or of Wilson Ramos about four or so years ago, if I recall correctly. It's been a while. I mean, they've gotten by decently and obviously they got by decently enough in their title winning season uh, with a combination of Jan Gomes and Kurt Suzuki, both of whom were actually below, above average offensively last season and who kind of have hung around that league average-ish mark for the majority of the last mm, four or so seasons. But really, this is a team that has not had that young catcher. Pedro Severino was, I think, the guy of the future a few years ago, but never really, never particularly panned out, and I believe is now in the Orioles. Uh, But really, the last Wilson Ramos season was 2016 when he hit 307, 354, 496 for a 121 OPS+. It will not surprise you to learn that that is the last time the Nationals got production that good out of the catcher spot. It has been now, this is now 18, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20. This is now fifth straight season where they're going to be getting meh production out of the spot. And certainly there was nothing within their farm system pre-Scherzer trade that suggested that that was going to end anytime soon. So yeah, it's exciting for Nationals fans. I don't know. I'm not nearly enough of a prospect person. In fact, I'm barely a prospect person at all to know whether or not Ruiz is the kind of guy a la Smith or a la Adley Rutschman that you kind of you feel like you can kind of build around. I do know that if everything breaks right, he should be an above-average catcher on both sides of the ball. And, man, there are not a whole lot of those in baseball. So, yeah, very exciting thing for Nationals fan. And one of those things, too, because Ruiz is not, you know, this isn't some 19-year-old kid uh, being called up. You know, this he's 22. He just, or he'll be, he'll turn, I'm sorry, he's just, he turned 23, um, you know, he's still young, obviously, but he already is, he's already been in the minors for, or he's already been in the majors for a little bit. So he's, you know, this is not something terribly new to him. He's played in AAA before. He's hit well in AAA. He's hit well at pretty much every level of the minors. So, but with that fact comes, comes the idea that, you know, this is not 
starting a kid from scratch. This is something where I think the Nationals are trying to see, you know, especially given that the given the moves they made that you know and the prospects they brought in, is it is this a rebuild that we can turn around quickly? You know, if if Kyber Ruiz comes up and spends a whole month of September mashing and then looks good in spring training, you know, does obviously one prospect doesn't change your entire timeline but at the same time i think it's what the nationals want to see and and along the same lines it's one what they want to see out of carter kaiboom and out of luis garcia and if they call up any of their pitchers who i think are still probably too far away for that you know that's the idea is that instead of we're going to do it oriole style where we just tear everything down and 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 start over i think what the nationals probably have more in mind is we already have juan soto in place now we have kyber ruiz and we have um we have josiah gray and we have some other young guys who are who are good we can turn this around a little faster. Maybe maybe it's more of like a Marlins-type rebuild, a, a kind of faster one. But, I mean, we'll have to wait to see. But it's certainly got to be I, – no, I would say it's very exciting for national fans to have a, one of those guys come up so quickly, too, and to start seeing what that future is going to look like, the post-Scherzer, post-Trey Turner future in D.C. Yeah, it could also go the other way. As we saw in Baltimore, the AAA uh, Diaz in – who was that deal for? Um in Baltimore. Yadiel Diaz? Yes. Yadiel Diaz was part of the uh, Machado deal. That's right. He is stuck in AAA and is getting worse. And now... They're... Yeah, and that, and that happens. And, like, that's the yeah. thing. That's why That's why we, I think I've talked so much about with Baltimore. It's like none of this is a guarantee. Just because you get good prospects and trades doesn't mean that they're going to turn into good major league players. Right. And that's definitely... That's definitely the case for... Uh, excuse me. That's definitely the case for... Jeez, I just totally lost track of thought. Track of my train of thought there. I mean, that's definitely the case for the Nationals too. Mm-hmm. That you know, none of this is a guarantee. But I, at the same time, you know, this is this is now the path they have chosen. And I think at the same time, they haven't undergone that same kind of to the studs teardown uh, that Baltimore did. I think this is. I think their situation is grim for the moment. But I don't think it's it's something where you're going to be you're going to be waiting like five years to to see the next good Nationals team. Maybe something closer to two to three, if things go right. And if things don't go right, well, then that's a whole other ass problem. True, true. All right, John, we're going to pause for a moment to listen to a, a couple words from our sponsors. All right, we are back on the Chase Thomas podcast, where I am still joined by Fangraph's John Taylor. John, the Pirates are not doing anything particularly well this season. It's very sad. It's a very bad baseball team. They're going to be a very bad baseball team for the foreseeable future. But as is the case, whenever a team is this bad, uh, somebody gets fired, and it's usually the hitting coach. A lot of hitting coaches get fired for for a bad roster, and uh, the Pirates moved on from their hitting coach today. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's... It's because I mean no no hitting coach was going to make a lineup starting Ben Gamel and Kevin Newman and uh, Jacob Stallings do anything other than just flail. Um, the, obviously the Pirates do have some good hitters. A healthy Cabrian Hayes is a good hitter. Brian Reynolds has been tremendous. Uh, Colin Moran is at least league average. The problem as with the Orioles is you very quickly start to run out of guys who are on the roster right now who you feel confident will be on the roster three years from now. Uh, right now that looks to me like. Hayes, Reynolds, Moran. <clears throat> yeah, and it pretty much <laughs> Especially a big problem for the Pirates, and this is, I think, the same problem you're seeing with the Orioles and kind of unites the two in that sense of this is never going to get better, 
they haven't developed any pitching worth a damn. Uh, Tyler Anderson has been their best pitcher this season, and he's not on the Pirates anymore, I believe. Or is it Chase Anderson who's no longer? Doesn't matter. <laughs> Both of them are bad. Uh, Mitch Keller continues to take steps backwards, and at this point very clearly needs to be in a different franchise. Uh, JT Brubaker is fine, but nothing special. Will Crow always had, was always a back-of-the-rotation guy in the national system. Um, the fact that they were willing to give up a pitching prospect should probably say a lot about what they thought that particular pitching prospect was going to offer. Uh, Relief-wise, bullpen-wise, there's not really a whole lot there. I mean, this is a very good farm system, but it is, I think, like you said, it's a similar vein to Baltimore where there's just nothing to look at for the next couple years here at least um, because they, they just have done such a poor job not just of developing the in-house talent they have and turning it into viable major league talent, but also just in finding talent elsewhere. Yeah, Reynolds was a great was a great pickup in exchange for Andrew McCutcheon for as gross as that trade was, but at the same time, that was he was a player the Giants had already developed and was a high draft pick out of Vanderbilt. You know, that's that's a good player nonetheless. And I'm I'm sorry to give props to Vanderbilt on your Tennessee. I was going to say that but. that was a little much, but okay. Anchor down, baby. Oh my uh, goodness, John Taylor does not want to be on this podcast ever again. But anchor think, down. How dare you? But certainly what happened to Gregory Polanco, I think, is pretty illustrative that they just don't seem to know what they're doing. He just kept going backwards in his time with the Pirates. Obviously, injuries didn't help. And now they're at the point where they've just, they're just going to get rid of him for absolutely nothing. This is a guy they tried to sign to a $50 million contract before he even played a one single major league game. Five or six years later, he's going to be released for and, and bring nothing in return. And his career is more likely, more likely than not over at this point. Uh, Polanco's a guy probably going to end up in Korea or Japan in the next year or two. So, Or have a resurgence in the Braves outfield. Hey, they always need bodies. Jorge so, Soler in the two spot? Who, hey, who, who says starting no? Center field, starting Red Sox center fielder Gregory Polanco is not the <laughs> I want to admit. So, but point being, yeah, this is an Orioles. This is basically the Orioles, but in the National League. They're cheap. They're bad. Uh, all the talent's in the minors. But really, if you're a Pirates fan at the Major League level and you haven't just given up already... You have to have a lot of serious questions about, yeah, great, you have a lot of talent in the minors, but you seem really, really bad at turning that talent into actual production. Because that's what's happened in, in for the Pirates. They've gotten one-ish, not even a full good season out of Hayes, because he, uh, he debuted last year and played only 24 games. They've gotten about a month's worth of good games out of Brian Hayes, roughly two seasons' worth of good games out of Brian Reynolds, and that's it. That's really the, that is really the extent of the success of player development on the current Pittsburgh Pirates. And I don't really know how you can say with any confidence, you know, that things are going to get better in Pittsburgh when that's what's happened so far. And I know they're not working with really any talent right now, but the talent they are bringing up from their system. And again, I'm going to point to to Keller and to Chad Cool and to JD, JT Brubaker and all the other guys, all the other pitchers they've had kicked through their system who have just been torn to pieces in the process. They just don't really seem to know what they're doing. And I wonder at a certain point, you know, some of it, you know, I don't know how much of any of the Neil Huntington front offices left. I doubt particularly much at this point, but I don't know. I, I, I just, it, but it also just doesn't seem like anyone in Pittsburgh particularly cares that this is the state of affairs. I'm sure Bob Nutting doesn't care because he's saving money. I don't think Pirates fans are really bothering anymore at this point. I, the Pirates thing feels like it's just something that could go on indefinitely, that there's no real reason to expect that they're going to be better. And I think the sad truth of the Pirates is if a lot, if those prospects, if they basically do get a 2013-ish redux where they get all these young guys who come up at the same time and kind of form that nice core, 
I think it's a pretty safe bet that it's going to be a 2014 Redux. And in conclusion, too, that you're going to get like two or three years out of those guys, and that's going to be the window because ownership is still going to refuse to spend. I mean, truthfully, I don't think anything materially improves the Pirates, good farm system or not, until they are in, di- in the hands of a different owner. But I don't I think that's happening Bob anytime. Has no soon. interest in selling, so the Pirates will just continue to be uh, an irrelevant and awful franchise pretty much until that's the case. Beautiful park, though. Beautiful park. Beautiful park. I will say it's a beautiful park. It's you were really just there. Pretty nice fan base too that I uh, that I found. But um, yeah, what was the most just, common uh, jersey you saw? Most common jersey I saw. Hmm, it's a good one. Probably there were a lot of McCutcheon jerseys. Mm. There were a lot of uh, Roberto Clemente jerseys, which is always a good call. Willie Start. There were a lot of throwbacks because the Pirates have a lot of good uh, throwback options. Clemente, Willie Start. But that's also not a good time for the fan base. Barry it's like Bonds. when you see a bunch the, of throwbacks. The early that means 90s the team... Barry Bonds jersey. Barry Bonds Pirates jersey is a spectacular piece of, of wardrobe. I have a Barry Bonds Pittsburgh Pirates rookie card that my dad got me. Um, it's in here. I use it as a bookmark, actually. Um, yeah, there you go. There you go. Maybe Brian Hayes is the next guy. Maybe we see a lot of Hayes jerseys in the, in the foreseeable future. Um, extensions were handed out for our good friends Jerry Depoto and Scott Cervais. What do you what do you make of the Mariners locking in this duo for the foreseeable sure. future? <laughs> I mean, Seattle ownership has pretty clearly decided that this particular place the Mariners are at, which is kind of, sort of, maybe contending with a cheap roster, is their ideal state. Um and Jerry DePoto is seemingly content to be the architect of that design. The Mariners feel like a house that just keeps adding rooms but never ends up finished. Do you know what I mean? It, it, they, they just, you, you keep, like, nothing is ever actually working within the house. The house has been under construction for years. It, it's got, like, 25 bedrooms but no toilets. <laughs> and, and not only no toilets, but there's, no, but there's never been, like, an attempt to design where the toilets would go. It's not, like bathrooms weren't even considered in the process. Mm-hmm. This metaphor is terrible, but I think the general idea is that Seattle ownership is okay with the Mariners as is because they are cheap and because they are contenders enough that fans can still remain attached to them. Because I, I, I think if you're a smart ownership group, you want to avoid a well, – maybe not a smart ownership group, but if you're a – not an awful owner, you want to avoid a Pittsburgh-Baltimore scenario because even though that is the cheapest way to do things, it also pretty much guarantees that no one's ever going to care about or watch your team again. So I think the Mariners want to find that middle ground of we're not good necessarily, but we're good enough. And we're good enough for the right price. And DePoto is very much committed to that. I I just don't think, and I I don't want to judge surveys because I, I don't watch nearly enough Mariners baseball which is to say I don't watch any Mariners baseball. So I can't speak to him as a manager or how he works with that team, but he was DePoto's handpicked manager, so I'm not surprised that they are keeping them together. It is just weird to me, though, essentially to see Jerry DePoto rewarded for what's essentially five to six years of mediocrity at best. Because this is the thing. this Ever since DePoto was hired, which I believe was either, I believe it was 2015, there's always been that idea that he was going to modernize the Mariners and take them out of the Jack Z Dark Ages and really actually deliver on the promise that the Mariners farm system kind of was like people felt like the Mariners farm system not only could deliver but should have delivered under Jack Z before. The problem is that that has not happened. The Mariners still feel to me like they're in uh, in assembly mode. You know what I mean? Like they're still putting pieces together. Well, that's Jerry DePoto in a that's, nutshell. That's like that's thing. never going to stop. That's how yeah. Jerry DePoto operates. It is a constant churn mm-hmm. to try to find 
essentially the most efficient production possible, which is to say the cheapest, most team-friendly production possible. Problem is you can't really build a good roster if you just keep churning it like that, and you certainly can't build a good roster if you end up doing stuff like, I'm going to trade our really good reliever to our, div- to our direct division rival for a utility infielder. And whatever the reasoning was behind that trade, financial numbers were really great for 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 Toro Hernet for Abraham Toro, uh, Kendall Graveman like peed on Jerry Depoto's car. I don't know what it was, but it's it's just every the way the way the the Mariners have built their roster and the way they've chosen to build that roster just simply doesn't make any sense to me unless the idea is we just want it cheap and moderately successful. And if that's all Seattle ownership does or wants, then hey, Jerry Depoto's your guy. He's very good at doing that. He's very good at assembling 79-win rosters made entirely out of uh, middle relievers. But I think at a certain point, you need to take that step forward. And I don't really think, or at least nothing from the last five years has suggested that that Depoto is the guy who's going to make the Mariners do that. And maybe that's because he cannot get ownership to spend the way he wants to spend. And certainly that's going to be interesting to see what Seattle does this offseason because they are a team that does not have a whole lot of money on the books. I think their biggest contract in Kyle Seager is coming off the books this season or this offseason. And, of course, there's a question of whether or not they bring back who, the guy who is essentially at this point the face of the franchise. But, yeah, I, I, I just – for me, it does nothing for me because it just, con- it just convinces me that the Mariners are just going to be this pretty much until DePoto no longer has a job or until ownership changes – so if you're a Mariners fan, if you're a Mariners fan, I can, I can see how you feel two ways about it. One is that, well, they've done a good enough job in getting us to this point. The problem is they don't seem to, they don't seem to have any interest, knowledge, or ability to get us beyond this point. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, even with the farm system as good as it is, with Jared Kalenic and Logan Gilbert and eventually Emerson Hancock and Julio Rodriguez and on and on, you know, will the Mariners do enough both this offseason and next to take that next step? And I, I don't really know that Depoto is the guy to do it because we just haven't seen him do it. You know, we've we not even seen him do We haven't even seen him try to do it. The, the Mariners haven't even had that uh, A.J. Preller binge offseason where they sign like six really good for, sign or trade for six really good players and try to become instant contenders. They never even really tried to do that, I feel like. I think the closest they got was. Uh, the Robbie Cano contract, and that wasn't even a Depoto contract, I believe. Yeah. Well, we shall see. At least there's stability there, and there are ten games over five hundred as of this recording. You know, things aren't doom and gloom like the the no, previous teams. The thing like Seattle is. Fine. You still have Rodriguez on the horizon. Seattle is fine. I think though that that fan base is ready for more than fine. I think they're ready for let's actually contend, and that's entirely fair. Because at a certain point, yeah, you got to contend. You can't just keep treading around in eighty win in eighty win water forever. And I will be interested to see if Depoto has that extra gear to make the team better, as opposed to or to make the team to help the team take the step from mediocre to simply good, as opposed to floating in the in that kind of gray area between mediocre and good. Mm. Last thing, and we'll wrap up here, John. The Rays have officially run away. With the AL East, lock it in. It's over. They're winning the AL East again. What do you make of it? I don't get it. At a certain point, like, <laughs> I don't understand how they keep doing this. I, I feel very much like uh, I feel very much like like that that endless uh, that Jesse Pinkman screen cap from Breaking Bad of him just screaming. He can't keep getting away with this. That's me with the Rays. Mm. He can't keep getting away with this. Like, or they can't keep getting away with this. How do they do this? 
Do you, do you know who is in their bullpen right now, or who's in their pitching rotation, or their pitching staff at that for the, the matter? Oh. Like, have you looked at their current pitching staff? Whew. Do you have it in front of you? I am pulling it up now because I want to make sure I get this right. Because my God! Mm-hmm. All right, so there is some good stuff here. Obviously, Shane McClanahan, Luis Patino, both very good prospects. You tell me when I name these names if you have ever heard of them before me saying them. Mm. Drew Rasmussen. Yes. Uh, Sean Armstrong. No. Adam Conley. No. Dietrich Enns. No. Uh, Cody Reed. No. Lewis Head. No. Jeffrey Springs. <laughs> You're making stuff up. Chris Mazza. No. Chris Ellis. No. These are all people who have pitched for the Rays this year, who are currently or formerly on the Rays roster. Is Colin McHugh still there? Colin McHugh's still there and having a fantastic season. He's actually one of their best relievers. Okay. But that's Michael Walker's like, still there? <laughs> a lot of these guys I've named are total nobodies and will be mm-hmm. total nobodies forever because the, the Rays are not in the business of creating stars. They're in the business of creating uh, functional assets. They're in the mm-hmm. business of taking guys who are okay and making them better. And yeah, they do create some stars, but the, the point here isn't that they were going to take Adam Conley or Dietrich Enns or whoever and turn them into the next Tyler Glasnow. They were just going to use them to plug a hole. Because that's what the Rays have been doing all season. They've just been taking bodies out of the minor leagues and plugging holes in an endlessly leaky dam, especially pitching-wise because of injuries. It's a terrible mixed metaphor, but you know what I mean. And yeah, it, it just... It, Boggles the mind that they've been able to do this with the pitching staff they have. And great that they've gotten good. Look at, I mean, they've gotten great seasons out of Mike Zanino, out of Brandon Lau, out of Austin Meadows. They've gotten Wander Franco has picked it up. Randy Rosarena looks like, like his postseason self again. Uh, McClanahan has been great for them. Has really carried a huge amount of the load with with Tyler Glasnow uh, on the injured list. But it, it's just it is mind blowing what the Rays do. Like, the Dodgers are the best team in baseball, I think, just on a pure, like, top-to-bottom level in terms of the roster, the farm system, and all that other fun stuff. But I really don't think Tampa's far behind. They are truly, and I hate giving them compliments. I hate it because I don't want the Rays' way of baseball, even though it is is how baseball operates now. I don't want this to be how baseball is. I don't want a sport where you get 39 relievers a season churn through, blowing out their elbows all the time. Because the Rays take advantage of the fact that they're cheap labor and that most of them coming up from the minors aren't even unionized full or aren't unionized in the first place and are probably never going to. I mean, that's not the point, but the Rays for the Rays, baseball players are disposable because pitchers are disposable. Now, there are so many pitchers out there and there's so many pitchers, not just out there, but also who throw 95 with the slider. Even some of these guys who are flat out terrible. Um, you know, what? here's a funny thing to me. Of all the relievers they have used, of all the pitchers they have used over the course of the entire season, uh, or at least of guys who have qualified, or, well, unfortunately I can only I can only see ERA, but the Rays have two qualified pitchers in the ERA above five. That's it. Among starters, or among guys who are among uh, qualified starters. They just, not only do they get these guys, but they're getting usable performances out of them. All the guys I just named, with the exception of Mazza and Ends, have ERAs under five, under four or under five rather. Actually, Mazza's is under five, so it's all of them except for Mazza and Ends have ERAs under four and a half. You can live with that. 
And they're getting, again, Cody Reed, Adam Conley, Drew Rasmussen. Who are these guys? Nobody knows. And yet they're just out there throwing major league caliber innings because the Rays are wizards. I've given up trying to understand this. I've given up completely. Like, clearly, the Rays are the best player development team in Major League Baseball. Or at the very least, they are the best at taking advantage of the particular skills that each individual player has. Which is to say, and I think the best example for this for this franchise... I was going to say, because you still have a case right. for the Astros and the Dodgers as... This is true, but I think... Yeah. And, and, and I think that, of course, that makes sense because those are three very, very uh, forward-thinking, forward-looking teams. And, of course, the Dodgers and the Rays have the Andrew Friedman connection. Um, but I, just Ryan Thompson, to me, strikes me as a perfect example because he is an, a, a side-arming right-hander who throws roughly 85 miles an hour. That kind of pitcher has not been useful, really, in, in, in the majors since really the, the heyday of Chad Bradford some 15 years ago. Um, rookies are not really a thing that you can kind of get by. But this, but the, the Rays made it work because... The Rays made it work in part because they've identified that Thompson is good at one particular... At, at, at a particular thing, which is to say he's very good at getting right-handers out, which is I mean, beyond that. But also because they identify stuff like, hey, his particular arm angle makes it harder for batters to pick up on this. Or his slider has the ability to do that. Or his fastball has, ver- has more vertical rise and horizontal rise, which means that on an... No, no. What I think is the case here, and I'm sure this is the reality if you if you were to talk to someone who covers this team on the regular, if you were to get uh, the Tampa Bay Times Mark Topkin on your on your podcast to talk about the good old Rays, is that this team probably dives deeper into data than just about any organization in the sport. Because they understand, and this, and this is the reality of, of their existence, of their very cheap financial existence, that they have to make every they have to squeeze every last penny. And they have to make they have to find something of value in everything they have. They're the th- they're a thrifty team. They never throw things out. They're always finding some way to use it, you know. And, that, and it should be no surprise that this is a team that, that basically made the opener a thing, that made bulk games a thing, that is probably going to lead to the complete demise of the starting pitcher at a certain point. I am pretty sure that more that the Rays have had more innings thrown by their bullpen than their rotation. But I, I don't want to say for sure, but I would not be surprised if that's the case. Regardless. I've given up trying to understand how they do it. I just know that they do do it, and that it is a absolute. It is absolutely insane to write them off at this point at any point going forward. I will never bet against the Rays at this point. They took the single crappiest collection of pitchers this side of the Orioles I've seen in the last like five years, and turned that into a team that is on pace to win how many games? I believe right now. Uh, they've played 132, and they've won 84. That winning percentage is 636. For a full season, they are currently on a 103-win pace. Mm. With no rotation, like two relievers anyone's ever heard of, and Mike Zanino. I give up. The smartest team in baseball. I, I give up. Like, I hate the way they do it. I hate what they represent in terms of how the sport both functions aesthetically and financially. I think they're the harbinger of of basically the doom of baseball as a sport that we can actually enjoy. But I will give them this. They are smarter than all of us put together. No question about that. There you go. Um, All right, John Taylor. That is all I've got today. Uh, what can we look at from you and the, the good folks at Fangraphs.com? 
So as August winds down and September begins, I mentioned this last week, but we're going to get more and more into playoff stuff and playoff preview stuff. Uh, right now on the site, we've got uh, we've got Dan Samborski on Wander Franco, speaking of the Rays, on his on-base streak and his entry into or his uh, improved entry into the AL Rookie of the Year conversation. Jay Jaffe's got some stuff on the position players this season who've most helped their Hall of Fame cases. Uh, ben Clements is a fantastic thing on Corbin Burns's curveball that I encourage you to read if you're into the pitch geekery stuff. It's very, very good. Uh, we'll have a few more things coming down the court over the course of the week, but definitely one thing to keep an eye out for. We're going to have a big series preview for Dodgers Giants ahead of what is going to be the last meeting between those two teams in this regular season. Really, the last chance for either team, either for the Giants to kind of stake their uh, their full on either to create the space necessary to make the division winnable for them or for the Dodgers to come back and finish it off because at this point San Diego is not just out of that race but also on the verge of dropping out of the postseason entirely so that obviously is going to be a huge series I'm going to be I'm very excited for it. it's going to be a lot of fun to watch so we'll have a full preview of that from one of our newer writers Luke Hooper up at uh, either tomorrow or Friday keep an eye out for that Otherwise, as Chase said, go over to Fangraphs.com, sign up for a membership, $20 a year or $50 for an ad-free browsing experience. Help support all the fun work we do and keep your favorite stat nerds uh, employed, housed, and fooded. Fed. I actually like fooded. Let's go with, I'm going to change my, I'm going to change it to fooded. <laughs> there you go. There you go. John Taylor, we can follow you on Twitter at Taylor. Go subscribe to Fangraphs.com if you have not already. And I will talk to you next week my friend sounds good all right hello and welcome back to the wednesday edition of the chase house podcast where we mosey on along to talk some west virginia mountaineer football a program that looks nothing like the west virginia i grew up with the pat white days the geno smith days those are gone this is not how west virginia football operates anymore but they are operated under a coach that i very much like and liked a lot at troy neil brown and to dive into the state of the west virginia mountaineers as they head into the 2021 college football season i am joined by someone who covers the team at the university itself charlie montgomery charlie good afternoon sir how are you doing very well thank you so much for having me on thanks for being here man so are you excited? What is uh what is the atmosphere like on campus heading into this new season? Is there mostly optimism? What have you gleaned from your readers and from students? Like, are they pretty excited about the season? Because obviously the elephant in the room with the Big Twelve and Oklahoma and Texas. But keeping that aside, where where do where do the fan base and where do the people stand about Neil Brown heading into the season? I think everyone is very excited. I think. Uh, they're more optimistic than you would have thought six months ago when we were getting into signing day and we were looking at the recruiting classes for 2021 and things like that. So I think there is a lot of optimism. Myself, I'm a little wary, but I know I think a lot of people very, very convinced Neil Brown is our guy at West Virginia. He got that big contract extension that will keep him here through 2026 just a few months ago. So people are excited. They like Jared Dagey at quarterback. They're not – as confident as they'd love to be when maybe we had Will Greer three years ago, but they still he's a more than capable quarterback. But you have a great running back in Letty Brown, and then something that was a question mark for the majority of the summer that kind of went away was the defense, not knowing how the defense was going to be, which has been 
the staple of Neil Brown's tenure at head coach. And so now the defense supposedly we're all good. Uh, Dante Stills has taken over as the man in charge for his brother. And so uh, I think it's I think pretty everyone's pretty optimistic, pretty excited for the year. The elephant in the room is Jared Diggy. And what do you what what have you seen from him this summer, this fall, this spring? What do you make of his development and what he can actually be? Yeah, everybody would love a Will career, but that's not realistic for a lot of different programs and those are harder to come by. Um with his development, what are you most looking for? What do you want to see him improve on from last year? I think it's just he never hurt the team last year. He didn't he wasn't a turnover prone quarterback. He was a pretty good quarterback when it came to making the decisions not to force something. So he knew when that was the critical moment. There were times when his deep ball was a big key that was something that just was not clicking for the majority of the season. And so the offense had to shrink in a way. It couldn't look 35 yards downfield because it, it wasn't there in the playbook because your quarterback wasn't the most capable quarterback when it came to throwing those passes. So I think if he can improve on his deep passes, he can look farther down the field and then just continue to be that quarterback that, like I said, he didn't hurt the team. And he was a great quarterback when we needed him to be a consistent player. But there were times when you needed a little bit more of an oomph. The Texas Tech game was one of them. Army in the Liberty Bowl game, that was a huge one. He got benched because of it. And they went with Austin Kendall. And so that was a problem, and I think they just lost confidence in him. But right now, listening to Neil Brown, listening to offense coordinator Jared Parker, listening to their quarterback's coach, they're very, very confident in him, very excited in him. And I think you owe him that. You need to be confident in him. That's the worst thing you could do is not have any confidence in him to go into the season. But they're confident. They're excited. They've seen his development. I think he's going to be a very solid quarterback. I don't know if he's a game changer like Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma, but he's still a consistent quarterback, probably one of the top three quarterbacks in the Big 12 this year. Top three in the Big 12? I think so. Oh, my goodness. Is he throwing downfield? If we're putting him in the top three, he needs to be throwing downfield because this man is like I tell people when I like watch West Virginia and just going back and film I'm like they play like Wisconsin now like West Virginia is a Wisconsin style team like Diggy is just a Jim Sorge type where it's like I don't really know if he's gonna like you said he doesn't make mistakes he doesn't hurt you but he also doesn't create anything he needs elite pass catchers around him he needs an elite running game he needs maybe not even elite just assault like everything needs to be solid around him and you have to have guys who are yak machines who can do stuff for him because i don't think he's gonna throw those guys open i don't think he's going to take those deep shots because i think last year yeah let me pull this up yeah his average yards per attempt fell a full 2.4 yards on those throws which are 15 plus um deep and among the 133 quarterbacks who threw at least 15 deep throws, he was 106th in yards per attempt. Like he just, he didn't, I don't know if that's the offensive line. I don't know if that's what they wanted. They asked of him or like, this was just something that he is just not, not comfortable with. Like he is not a deep shot taker, but if West Virginia and he is going to be a top three quarterback in this conference, he has to take deep shots. If you want to be in that group with Sanders, with, um, if you want to be in there with Casey Thompson, if you want to be in there with Rattler, if you want to be in there with, I mean, even why am I blanking on TCU's quarterback's name? I always forget this dude's name. Duggan. Duggan. Yes. Um, Then you're just like, you gotta, you gotta go downfield a little bit more. You gotta do some stuff. Is that fair? Yes, I think you're right. And I think you touched on it a little bit, the offensive line. And that was the storyline of all storylines for West Virginia football in the off season was how can the offensive line improve? Because it was horrendous last year. It wasn't that great 
two years ago. And so it's been the bane of Neil Brown's offense in his time here. And he made some changes. He got Doug Nestor from Virginia Tech to transfer in. He has a great he has a great lineman in Wyatt Millam. He has a great kid uh, out of those two guys. There, it's a lot of competition too. The offensive line it's not as deep as Neil Brown says he wants it to be, but there's competition there. And so I think if you improve that offensive line, it gives Daigie time. And I think he also touched on also he's trying to be more mobile. He's going to run it a little bit more because there is a great number two quarterback with Garrett Green who's like Pat White that can throw the ball pretty well, but he can run. His bread and butter is running the ball. And so Daigie has kind of taken some pointers from Garrett Green to be more mobile, to give himself some opportunities outside of the pocket when it collapses. And because of the youth and just still a little bit of an inexperience on the offensive line, he's going to have to do that. He has great receivers, Bryce Ford, Wheaton, Winston Wright. Both really had great years last year. Sam James is still kind of a – you can't rely on him like you did two years ago as a freshman All-American, and so they need him to be back to where he was in 2019. But I don't know if he can do that. He has had those issues with catching the ball. But Daigie, yeah, he's going to have to throw the ball deep. It's going to have to be able to make plays and be consistent, but also a guy, when they need it, he's going to make that play. Okay. We'll see. I mean, the best thing, too, is that his pass grade versus pressure last year, 24th in the country. Like, he was really good, even behind, like you said, the offensive line not being where it needs to be. He's someone that seems like can survive um, and not kill you with a less than ideal offensive line situation. Yeah, the good thing is he's used to the line collapsing now. So Mm -hmm. it might be a little bit of a shocker for him when it doesn't do it as often this year. So hopefully it doesn't, but who knows? We don't know yet. Um, When you look at what they lost on defense you lose stills you lose miller you lose smith a lot of questions in the secondary a lot of questions to the defensive line will they get enough pressure to really throw a lot of these big 12 offenses off uh off the rhythm what do you what are you looking for who do you think steps up in those spots I think you have to look at Akeem Mesidor. I don't think you should get too wrapped up if you're on the outside looking at the defensive line. Uh, don't get too wrapped up on Darius Stills leaving. I don't think okay. you need to focus too. I think because last year, and we saw it last year when watching the team and watching their games, it was Akeem Mesidor. He was fantastic. And he's going to continue to be fantastic. And they were they were shouting his praises throughout July and August. They have been shouting his praises. And so they love Akeem Mesidor at that defensive line. And you pair him with Dante Stills. And to be honest, I'm a little shocked with the preseason accolades that Dante Stills has gotten. But he is a great he is a great defensive lineman that brings pressure. He had he led the team in tackles for loss last season. He wasn't a sack heavy D lineman, but he can still make the plays. And you touched on that, that secondary. That's the biggest question mark is the West Virginia secondary. How does it rebound? You lose a transformative player in Tyke Smith. There is no doubt about that. Georgia got an incredible player. And then on top of that, you lose Jamil Adai our defensive co-defensive coordinator and secondary coach, uh, defensive backs coach. And so you lose him now. And so you have a new guy with defensive backs. It's a brand new defensive coordinator. Jordan Leslie is now the full-time defensive coordinator. He's been here since the Neil Brown era began. So it's still some question marks. The the linebackers are very solid. Josh Chandler Samito has made that move to middle linebacker to take over where I believe Tony Fields was. And that's a big loss. 
But then you have Alonzo die there still. That's a very good secondary player. You have Sean Mahone. He's back at safety. He's very, very good. You have a great player in Nick Troy Fortune at cornerback. He made some moves last year. He's supposed to be improving. And you you have guys. Kerry Martin's back from a COVID. Uh, he sat out last year due to COVID-19. And so I think there are a lot of unproven players that still have a lot of room to make noise and fill those spots left by Tyke Smith or Darius Stills or Tony Fields. True or false, by the end of this season, everybody will know who Winston Wright is. True. True. 100%. Okay. Fantastic slot receiver. I think if you you utilize him on some jet sweeps and you let him use that speed because he's incredibly fast, and I think if you can focus on Bryce Ford Wheaton being your main target, because in many people are not on the sideline when Bryce Ford Wheaton walks by, and I've been there. He's ginormous. He's very, very big, and it's that whole thing of that kind of DK Metcalf build for receivers now. They're getting bigger, but he's still very fast. And so you got a great number one receiver in Bryce Ford Wheaton, and I think you use Winston Wright. You utilize his speed and you his ability to spread it out. And I think, yeah, I think people are going to know his name. Okay. Um, when you look at this schedule, what do you see? I see six, best-case scenario, seven. Do you think the it's just a march for six, just get to bowl, get to a bowl game? Like, is that where they're at? I think it's six, seven wins. I and I could see five. I could see five. I could Is see five a disaster. I could see five would be. I don't know. I w- I'd have to say it's a disaster. It's third year for Neil Brown, and you come off that contract extension. Now I'm not saying Neil Brown is even close to a hot seat because he's not, and he's built a great foundation with recruiting, and years in advance he's brought some great players in already. But years in advance down the line, he's built a fantastic foundation that Daniel Holgerson could never never even dream of doing in recruiting and so i think it's a six seven one season you have a great team in oklahoma you have a really good team in iowa state oklahoma state's on the up and up if they have a consistent quarterback in spencer sanders that was kind of their thing their limiting factor last year people are really riding high on tcu i'm not going to believe it in tcu but uh until i see them play a couple times but yeah this is this is a little bit of a gauntlet of a schedule i think this is a two tough non-conference games and yes. i'm thinking six seven wins i'm thinking six or seven that's what I was going to mention. It's just the out-of-conference stuff. Like, Virginia Tech might be a disaster. I'm not a big uh, master guy. Like, we'll see um, post Hendon Hooker if he's he can step up. Justin Fuente, obviously, looking at other jobs this offseason. I have no idea what to make of Virginia Tech. They could be really good because there is a lot of talent there still, but they could also just be a dumpster fire. I don't know. And then Maryland, they're recruiting well. Loxley is a recruiting magician in DMV, but, like, is this legit? Are they going to actually have this translate to wins anytime soon? Like, is this, is he a good enough coach to beat Neil Brown? I I'm excited. Like I already have, that's on my recordings for this week, the Maryland game. So let's, let's talk about it. What do you, what are you looking for in this Maryland game? How do you see it going? What, uh, what is the matchup to watch? I think it's when going to Neil Brown's press conference and listening to him and listening to Jordan Leslie and offensive coordinator, Jared Parker, there's a lot of unknowns, apparently. They just don't know about mm-hmm. Maryland. Loxley's been there for a few years now, but brand-new offensive coordinator, Enos, and a brand-new defensive coordinator in Stewart, and also a brand-new special teams coordinator. I don't know his name, but so three brand-new coordinators. And so there is a bit of an unknown going into this game. I think Maryland has a solid, solid quarterback in Tagovailoa. We already know his brother Tua, but Talia, he's very capable, great, mobile quarterback. Neil Brown sung his praises yesterday. And West Virginia struggles historically, but under Neil Brown, doesn't do very well against mobile quarterbacks. And so if Talia, 
is able to get out of the backfield and scramble around, spread West Virginia's defense out, it could be a problem. And he has some great, great receivers that are coming back. And Demas, I believe, is one of them, and he's the headliner. He's considered the best or one of the best receivers in the Big Ten this year. And so it's it'll be a very quick test on the secondary. Can the secondary handle it? I think the defensive line is more than capable of putting on pressure of Talia. They have to contain him. But I think the secondary is going to have to give the defensive line a nice backup and realize, hey, put as much pressure as you want on him. We're going to cover his guys downfield. And I think that's going to be a big test. And Letty Brown, can Letty Brown keep it going? He's the baddest man in Morgantown, according to Gus Johnson. So can he keep it going? The offense is going to flow through Letty Brown. Neil Brown said that a couple weeks ago. It's all on Letty right now. And is Daigie going to be able to step up and make the plays? I think West Virginia is going to win this game, not because I'm a West Virginia student and a writer for the team and I've been a lifelong fan. I think they win this game. I think this is the game for West Virginia to get caught in. It's a game that you might overlook. Excuse me. But I think West Virginia wins this game. It's going to be an early test for a lot of facets of both the offense and the defense. Okay. I think so too. I think a lot of people are just penciling in Maryland, but I, I would be surprised if Maryland beats West Virginia here. Um, last thing, and we'll wrap up. You know what I don't like about this schedule, Charlie? Do you know what I don't like about it? Um, Oklahoma in week four. <laughs> well, I don't think anybody wants Oklahoma at any point in the yeah. schedule. Like, they could win the national title this year. That's oh how loaded they are. Like, I don't think anybody wants any part of Oklahoma. Um, no, it's no Marshall and no Pitt. It's just not like I just I will never look at a West Virginia schedule and not be annoyed at the not even one. We're not even getting one of these games every year anymore. What is the deal? Like, are we getting any of these games back anytime soon? Like we just as Tennessee people, we just locked in the Johnny Majors Bowl. So Pitt and Tennessee are going to be doing this um, a lot just because of the majors background of him coaching both schools. So that's cool. Like Pitt's going to be a thing for us. But I mean, I don't understand why. West Virginia cannot make this happen. You can make Maryland happen out of conference, but you can't make Marshall or Pitt happen. What are we doing? What are we doing here? Pittsburgh's back next year. Okay, good. Four year deal with Pittsburgh, a home and home. I th- I, it's a four year. It's 2022 through 2025. West Virginia plays at Pitt next year, then home in Morgantown, the 20, uh, 2023, and then at Pitt and then home again. Uh, so we do Happy get to Pitt hear that. next year. Sadly, I, I graduate in December, so I'm not going to be here covering it. I might come on up just to see it happen, just so mm-hmm. just so I can say I was here. But, uh, yeah, that's that's been a problem. West Virginia fans have tried to replace a rivalry with Pitt with a rivalry with Texas. I've never been one of those people. Texas clearly doesn't consider us a rival. They consider us an annoying little brother. And speaking of annoying little brothers, that's Marshall. Mm-hmm. Marshall is just an annoying little brother down there in Huntington, and they were for years and years and years. And it's kind of the same scenario with basketball. Mm-hmm. We try to make it work with basketball. Marshall doesn't want to – I don't know why we don't have a series with football. I know basketball, They Marshall didn't want to come up to Morgantown. Uh, Coach Huggins got tired of going down there and playing in Charleston. And mm-hmm. since Marshall doesn't want to make it work, we don't want to do it anymore. Uh, I don't know. I, Marshall's, I think Marshall's just too low now. I think when you want a non-conference Shots fired at Charles like Huff. This, yeah, you want a Power 5. You want Power mm-hmm. 5 Maryland. You want a Power 5 Virginia Tech. You kind of want to move on from the teams like Marshall. And, and Pitt, Pitt is a Power 5, and we'd like to play them. Uh, but I think in the direction we're going, in the direction that Pittsburgh's going, we are on the up and up. Pitt's kind of meddling out right now. But that's just me. 
Okay. I mean, you could get rid of that September 11th game against, uh, who is that? Who is this on the schedule? LIU. Yeah. Uh, you don't know L- Long Island? You didn't mm. know they had a football team? Why are they the None Sharks? Of None of us knew they had a team. Okay. So. There you go. Are they, wait, are you about to be Bishop Sycamore? Is that what's happening here? Are we sure that they're real? <laughs> yeah. Are we... yeah. Uh, we're trying to find a roster, I bet, and their quarterback is maybe the between the ages of 19 and 35, probably. Mm. Dare Smith might get some snaps. We'll see. He got some eligibility. Yeah, we'll, yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Their coach might have some eligibility left. I don't know. That could be the whole scenario. That just happened. Did you see who South Carolina oh just named gosh, as their it's quarterback? Hilarious. <laughs> Everything keeps coming out. It's hilarious. It's awesome. It's the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> what, what a story. I mean, even the ESPN announcers were saying, yeah, we can't confirm who this is. Mm. We don't have this guy on our roster. It's like, oh, my gosh. Who did this to you guys? Yeah, it, that, that was incredible. Um, but also stay ready because, like I said, like Zeb Norland, he's uh, he's starting for South Carolina. He was coaching South Carolina this summer, and then Doty got hurt, and they were like, "Hey, we actually need you because Helensky transferred," and he lost the job. So if Helensky had just stayed, he's starting probably in Week One in Carolina. Instead, he's backing up Hunter Johnson in Northwestern. Like yeah. the transfer portal, I think people get way too wound up with this stuff. I think it's going to settle down in a couple years. Because there are going to be so many cautionary tales of like guys, actually, if they just stayed, it could have worked out. Um, and there's a lot of guys who are make these jumps and it it gets worse. <laughs> and and yeah. I, I don't Tate know. Martell, perfect example. He's yes. moved around almost every year. It seems like it's an honorary thing every year now. Mm-hmm. He moves around. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But I'm for it when it's Joe Milton. I'm, I'm for it when <laughs> Joe Milton makes the jump. I'm excited. Oh, exactly. I know. Yeah, you guys just named him number one, huh? Yeah. We'll see how that, yeah. Good well, I'll be him. there tomorrow night. I get to see up, up close in person. You can see it on the SEC network. We get primetime billing on the network against well, Bowling Green. Well, I'm from Green. Alabama, so I've lived my life, you know, SEC football. I've had to live with uh, a lot of crap being a West Virginia fan down in Alabama, so... I've lived through it. Wait, how does that work? How did you grow up a West Virginia fan being in, from Alabama? My dad went here okay. back in the late 70s. He was here actually his freshman year. Bobby Bowden was coaching his last Oh, season. wow. And West Virginia won the Peach Bowl and then moved on to Frank Signetti, who was uh, god awful. OC at uh, Boston College right now. Yeah, his yeah. so uh, he moved. So my dad went here, and so I've always said I wanted to go here and then moved around military and uh, ended up been in Alabama for the past 14 years and then uh, been up near the Huntsville area for the past 11. So I've been there and had to listen to a lot of people. I was there for Auburn's national championship when they won it with Cam Newton. And then I've been there when they made the run to lose to Florida State. And then I've been, you know, however many national championships Alabama's had, uh, I've been there through it all. But I've stayed strong as a West Virginia fan. There you go. There you go. That's that's really cool, man. Well, thank you so much. How can we check out your work ahead of the Maryland game this weekend? How do we keep up with you this season? Yes, the DA.com. So it's the DA.com, Daily Athenaeum. That's our student newspaper. We are actually in the process. Tomorrow night, we are putting together our big special edition, football special edition. So we're doing a whole 12-page spread on the team in the upcoming year. Stories about the band. Also, we are, of course, the pride of West Virginia is on the field again this year, thank God. And so, yeah, we're uh, keep up. The daonline.com is a perfect way. I have some stories going out every every week and every day. You know, stuff's always happening because it's college football. So, of course, Twitter, cmonty2000, uh, cmonty2000 on Twitter if you want to follow me. So, have at it. 
go do that. Keep up the great work. Stay safe this fall. Enjoy some couch burnings. And uh, we will maybe we'll check back in West Virginia. We'll see how yeah. they're doing. We'll we'll exactly. do that. Thanks, Charles. I'm, I'm rooting for Alabama fans not to be smoking any cigars this fall. By the way, for you, so I, I'm all for Tennessee. So I mean, I don't. The, the, there's a middle degree. I, I don't think uh, if Alabama falters a little bit, Tennessee is rising. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. But I'm just hoping for six. I just want to go bowling. March for yes. six and just get the bowl game and stay healthy and don't don't uh, opt. You have to opt out of the Liberty Bowl. Like, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> that would be great. Charles, thank you so much for making the time today. Good luck this season. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you. All right. The Wednesday edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast rolls along where I am now joined by someone who covers a team that I would like to see in the playoffs at some point before 2030. But hey, we'll have to see. It's Rock Kabatko. Rock, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good, thank you. How you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. What has it uh, been like covering the Baltimore Orioles this season? <laughs> well, it hasn't been really shocking to me because I was not expecting that they'd be in the playoff hunt. And I thought there was a pretty good chance that they could be in last place. But, you know, when you cover a team that's had losing streaks of 14 and 19 games separately, mm-hmm. that is something you don't anticipate. Uh, you know, you expect maybe some bad baseball. You're trying to avoid historically bad. And they were trending in that direction. And I got to tell you, just selfishly, I got tired of having to do the research of, you know, the last time this has happened and, you know, bringing up teams from the early 1900s and how much they were outscored during that losing streak. When they broke the 19-game streak, probably no one was happier than me just so I could get rid of all of that research. Uh, But, I mean, it all starts with starting pitching, and that's been a major issue for them. Uh, And they've got a lot of placeholders, a lot of guys that they're bringing up, rotation and bullpen, you know, six-year minor league free agent signings that were more about depth, uh, not guys who are part of the rebuild moving forward. You get a lot of guys with high ERAs and AAA who are still getting promotions, not necessarily earning, but just because they need fresh arms. Uh, And that's a recipe for disaster, especially in the American League East. I mean, it's just there. There's just no breaks. I mean, it's just such a brutal division for a team that's that's outmanned every night. So, uh, you know, but you just you just deal with it and you report what's happening and you try and pull out some of the the positives, the individual stories that they have. And obviously the, the improvement of the farm system. So you mentioned the improvement of the farm system. What is what what is the latest on who's rising, who's falling? Uh, MLB.com just unveiled their their latest new pipeline rankings, and the Baltimore Orioles were were first. Yeah, they're first or second. I think Baseball America had them second. Pipeline mm. had them first. And I mean, I've been covering this team full time since '97, and I remember when they were like 31st out of 30 teams. I don't even know how that's humanly possible, but that's how bad the farm system was. And now to have them first or second, I wasn't sure I would see that in my lifetime. So uh, that's that's the most important part of this rebuild is the improvement of that farm system and drafting and developing. Cause they're not going to spend a lot of money. So this is very encouraging. Now it is top heavy. People will tell you, you know, they have the best position player at Adley Rutschman. They have the best pitcher in Grayson Rodriguez. So that's going to really help your rankings. But then it's about, you know, how much more pitching can really, you know, help them here at the major league level, who's closest. And, you know, you have guys like, you know, DL Hall, who's still in double a, 
done for the season with a stress reaction in his elbow, and you hope it isn't too serious because they're really counting on him. They've got other guys that scouts like, but you'll get mixed reactions on whether they're back-end rotation guys or more likely to be bullpen guys. So they And they don't draft highly with pitchers. It's a lot of position players. So, you know, they're going to have to hit on a lot of these guys or – maybe go after somebody in the next draft who, who's higher up the board, but they certainly prefer college hitters. But, uh, you know, Grayson Rodriguez really is. I mean, he looks like he's a real deal in Rutschman. And then you've got an outfielder like Kyle Stowers, who's moved up to 11th. Uh, he was a former second rounder who leads the, the organization home runs right now. Uh, is a guy that's that's on the upswing. And Taron Vavra, who they got in the uh, Michael Gibbons trade uh, with the Rockies and infielders in double A, uh, and they, I mean, they love their first round pick, Colton Kalzer, who, you know, Sam Houston stayed, he was under slot, but they didn't take him just for that reason. They, they, he was, you know, the best hitter on their board and somebody they think is going to move quickly, but they could use that savings to, to over slot farther down in the draft, which they did again. Uh, so there, there are a lot of, you know, guys that are trending upward, but then you have some some disappointments and, and the big one is is Yusniel Diaz who came from the Dodgers and that Manny Machado trade was one of their top position prospects at that time and it's been another injury filled season for him uh, and not hitting at all in AAA and this is a guy that they thought would be in right field by now and maybe could have been last summer if there hadn't if there had been a minor league season so he's really going in the other direction and pitching wise there have been some disappointments Dean Kramer didn't take the next step Zach Lowther just got off his rehab assignment and is back with Norfolk, but he didn't make that next step. Alexander Wells has been on the taxi squad, uh, has not pitched that well when he's been up here, pitching much better in AAA. These are guys that they thought might all be in the rotation by now, and that hasn't happened. Keegan Aiken has put together a couple of good starts in a row, but he didn't even break camp with the team, and it was a struggle for him for a while. And these are guys they all thought were going to take the next step this year, and it didn't happen. So... When you look at the the actual roster, the actual Baltimore Orioles roster at the moment, who who fits as a long term option? Who do you see making it through this rebuild when they're they're back to contention and just contending for a wild card spot and getting back to above five hundred baseball? Who do you think survives this time period? I think anybody whose last name begins with an M: mm, Cedric okay. Mullins, Ryan Mountcastle, uh, John Means who's their ace, uh, and Trey Mancini is a candidate to be dealt or to be given an extension. So mm-hmm. We're not sure which way that's going to go, but he's got one more year of arbitration eligibility, then he's a free agent, and obviously they don't spend a lot of money in a rebuild, but he is one guy that they would consider possibly extending, and he's important to them for a variety of reasons, and obviously uh, stage three colon cancer survivor. He's got his own separate story that's the most inspirational in baseball, and uh, he means so much to them on and off the field. But you, know, you look at guys like that, uh, and certainly, you know, Mount Castle all of a sudden is really charging into the rookie of the year discussion. And Mullins, we had no idea, was going to turn out to be the player he has. He's going to be the runaway team MVO winner this year. Legit leadoff hitter, plus defense in center field. Could be a 25 25 guy uh, and has 30 doubles. And somebody who's going to get votes. And the MVP vote, he's not going to win it, but he is going to get votes. And nobody really saw that coming. I think Austin Hayes, as long as he can stay healthy in the outfield, no longer maybe the center field of the future, but they love him in left and right. I mean, look at, at guys like that. And you say, okay, those are all pieces moving forward. And they, you know, they should be. 
And uh, who knew, Rule 5, that Tyler Wells, who hadn't pitched above double-A, hadn't pitched in two years after Tommy John in the cancellation of the minor league season, that not only would he stick with the club, but really he's their best high-leverage reliever. If he isn't closing, he's coming in the seventh and eighth when they desperately need to get out. He is their best reliever. So he absolutely is a piece moving forward in whatever role it is. They don't tend to anoint you know, closer or primary setup or whatever. It's just like if, if we need big outs, and we can trust this guy, he's in, whenever that is in the game. Games can be saved in the earlier innings, and that's what happened recently here with him. So uh, I think Tyler Wells as well, he's been a tremendous story because you just don't know what you're going to get with a Rule 5 pick, and, and he's you know upper 90s velocity and really good stuff and throws strikes and quality strikes and is not afraid at all. He wants that ball in those pressure situations. Um. That's interesting. I just, the Mancini stuff, I don't understand why you would move on. Like, you could get a little bit for him, but I would just, like you said, the off the field stuff is great. But it's also this idea that you can't just lock in some veterans as you rebuild and as you're bad and you're rebuilding. Like, you can't do that. It's like he's not moving the needle. <laughs> Baseball is not a sport right. where, like, one guy is just going to move the needle and just throw a gigantic wrench in your rebuild. So you have to just completely uh, leave the cupboard barren. Like, I just, I don't like when teams do that. And it's become way too commonplace in Major League Baseball, I think, by and large. So it's it has like, been. It has been. Right. And really, there are two theories with it. I mean, you can look at, say, you know, if, if they're not going to be good for a few more years, let's say, and Mancini's already eligible for free agency, and you can get something for him, and he's going to be he's making $4.7 million now, and he's going to obviously get a nice raise, that this would be the time to move him. But then, you know, you can't trade every player – who's good just because you're not ready to contend mm-hmm. yet. Then you find yourself trying to find that player. Just like there were some fans that were concerned that they might move Cedric Mullins because his value's never been higher, but it's like, but he's valuable to them. Like yeah. you got to keep some of these guys. You got to keep a John Means. He's, he's drafted and developed number one starter, had a no hitter this year. And you know, you're going to go out and try and find more John Means through the draft. If you go ahead and trade him, this is exactly what you want. A guy who's not breaking the bank. He's not making big money that's your guy that you trust to be your, your ace. So you keep guys like that. But again, everybody's on the table. I mean, if you're overwhelmed by an offer, you have to consider it. But there are certainly guys that you really want to hold on to and say, okay, they are part of this plan moving forward. And Anthony Santander, there was a lot of interest in him in the offseason and in spring training. And I think they certainly would have considered moving him for the right offer. But then he sprained his ankle in April, and he still hobbled by it, really. He's never fully recovered he slumped badly and his value dropped. So it's like, well, then why would you move him now with his value so low? If he, and he's had spurts where he's really looked good again. And then you think, all right, well, maybe you revisit that in the off season. You're not forced to move him, but you know, you certainly want to check the market frame again, but that's a guy that, that scouts had been doing their homework on. And then when he started, when he was hurt and started struggling, his value dropped. You definitely hold on to someone like him. Absolutely. Um, who has been the unsung hero? for Baltimore in this season? I think any beat writer that shows up every day <laughs> and, and takes the abuse on social media because people love to shoot the messenger, as you know. So uh, I, I think it's that group. But, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to say because there have been the obvious guys and then there have just been such steep drop-offs in performance after that. So I don't know if there's anybody that were like, wow, we hadn't really even – 
considered or noticed him, then when you think about it, he's been really good. I mean, maybe back to somebody like Wells again, because he, he had been out for a while. He had wrist tendonitis. But the fact that they actually found somebody that they feel like is a trustworthy reliever is huge for them because that's been a major issue for them is the bullpen. And when you have a rotation where guys aren't getting deep in their starts, and that was a problem for most of the season, and you have to keep going to a bullpen where guys can't give you length, can't stop the bleeding, and can't be trusted in these high-leverage situations, whether or not they have track records, you're screwed. And then, you know, Brandon Hyde takes all this heat from people I see, again, on social media saying he mismanages the bullpen and he shouldn't use this guy and he shouldn't use that guy. And I'm like, well, what can you do? They're shuttling relievers constantly and they're bringing up guys. And like I said, a lot of them had high ERAs and AAA, but you played the hand you're dealt. Mm-hmm. And guys that he was counting on this year, the Paul Fries, the Tanner Scotts, for example, Cesar Valdez, who ended last year as their closer, and ended up having to be designated because he was struggling so much. Fry was option to triple A because it's just been, you know, disastrous stretch for him. And Scott still walks too many guys. I mean, if you can't even rely on the guys that you thought would be your high leverage and had somewhat of a track record, then you're in a lot of trouble. You just don't have many options and you can't shy away from most of your relievers and use the same one or two guys. You can't use Tyler Wells every night. You know, Dylan Tate, they love his arm, but it's just very, very inconsistent. And he, and, but they still have to bring him into pressure situations because he's the one guy that they feel like, okay, he's available and he's done it somewhat in the past. So you tried. And when it works, you manage the bullpen wonderfully. When it doesn't work, you mismanage your bullpen. <laughs> it doesn't seem fair, but that's the life of a manager on a team like this in a rebuild. So I think the fact that Tyler Wells can be trusted at all and, and you know give them someone that they feel like can get outs in a high-leverage situation, potentially be their closer moving forward, uh, he deserves a lot of praise. What is the the vibe with the fans right now? By the way, I should also mention Ramon Urias, who mm-hmm. got an opportunity to be uh, really a, a utility-type guy, small sample size late last season, and all of a sudden has emerged as somebody who could be their starter at shortstop next spring or maybe third base because that's wide open or just be super utility. But he ended up being one of their most – productive and clutch hitters on the roster and uh, nobody saw that coming he definitely is an unsung hero uh as far as how the fans are taking it is that what you're asking me yeah because i just i wonder like where are they at with this team yeah you know it's obviously you know it's going to be somewhat mixed some people get it they knew Mm -hmm. what was coming they knew this was going to be bad and they were screaming for it even before it started there were a lot of fans that thought that they needed to start trading their best players before they actually did it in the uh, at the deadline in 18 when they moved Machado and and Britton and Gosman and Scope, uh, there were fans already saying they should have done it sooner. And yet the Orioles thought that they had you know they might have been able to compete you know at least that one last season when the window was closing because they contended in 17 until September, and then it fell apart. And of course, 18 was a disaster, and and that was it for the Dan Duquette Buck Showalter era. But there were fans that were totally on board with this. And the team's been very transparent about what it was going to be like. Mike Elias, his introductory news conference, said, look, this is going to be ugly. This is why you never want to go through this again. And here's what we have to do. And we ha- we're not just rebuilding a roster. We're building from scratch an international scouting department and an analytics department and because they'd fallen so far behind other teams in those areas. So they had to do that first. That was where most of the attention was going. And, oh, by the way, we have to start hiring all these other people manager coaches front office whatever so there are fans who totally understood that they were warned and they 
are just trying to be patient. And you have other fans that keep asking, well, how long does a rebuild take? And I have to say, well, unfortunately, it's not, you know, one or two years, and it's not going to be three years. And especially when you have a total teardown and as much work as they had to do. Uh, and, you know, you try and, again, look at the, the farm system and say, well, this is proof right here that it's working in this area. And they are more, much more involved now in, in analytics. And they're bigger players in the international market, which they desperately needed to be for years. So that's all coming together. But the product on the field, I think there are a lot of fans that are frustrated because they thought it would at least be more competitive. Even if they weren't ready to be 500 or better, that it wouldn't be the worst record in baseball. And it wouldn't be, you know, the, uh, such a huge disparity between even the mediocre teams and what they've been this year, the run differential and, and these losing streaks. I thought they could at least put a more competitive product on the field and give more fans a reason to come to the ballpark. Uh, and it just hasn't worked out. And I think they realize that they're going to have to try and, and go out and, and, you know, do a better job of plugging some holes and finding placeholders on the pitching staff, as opposed to just a lot of reclamation projects, the Matt Harvey's, the Wade LeBlanc's, the Felix Hernandez's who you know, didn't make it out of camp and try and find some reliable middle relievers and a couple of veterans for that rotation to keep them at least more competitive until the kids are ready to move in. I will send Sean Newcomb your way. That is my final offer. I'll send you a Newcomb. That to, okay. to help you out. Yeah. That's the only Braves <laughs> pitcher I'm willing to part with. Because honestly, what you brought to me with Nick Markakis, what the Orioles brought to me with Nick Markakis for years, um, I haven't forgiven Baltimore. And I will not forgive for a long period of time. The the grit conversation with Nick Markakis and the veteran leadership that he brought as he was grounding out to end all kinds of important plays over his Braves tenure. Um, I, they, will, they will not be forgotten for a long time. The Nick Markakis experience was a running joke with my friends and every and on this very podcast of just like the Braves are just going to keep bringing him back. There, he's never going to be completely out of my life. Like this is just never, never going to be a thing. He's going to bat in the five hole forever, and I just I can't do it anymore. I cannot do it. And Oriole fans were so bitter mm-hmm. that he didn't say that he wasn't resigned because obviously he had the disc uh, surgery and whatever negotiations were going on in a four-year deal, that offer was pulled and they never came back to it. They didn't re-sign Nelson Cruz because they didn't think he'd hold up with a four-year deal. They were only willing to go three years. And that was how long ago after the 14th season. This guy looks like he's never going to retire. So, but yeah, I forgot Nelson Cruz was an Oriole. Yes, and a very good one and a, and a, a leader, like a huge, huge part mm-hmm. uh, of that team. Uh, so they missed him in a variety of ways. When do we see Adley? When does he make his first appearance? I'm assuming it's going to be 2022, and whether okay. that's breaking camp with the team or soon after. I don't think he's going to be part of the expanded September roster. I don't know how much of that uh, has to do with the uncertainty with the collective bargaining agreement. If there is a work stoppage, and I believe it's if you're on the 40, then you can't play at all. You can't even go down to the minors and play. If you're not, you can go ahead and, and continue to play. There's service clock issues. I know they just wanted to still get a lot of, of AAA at-bats. And again, not having a minor league season last year, he still made the jump from low A to double A. And they did a lot with him in you know, the summer, the alternate campsite and the fall instructional league to get work. And he's so advanced, he was still able to make that jump. But I think they still want him loading up on uh, AAA games. I don't think you'll, we'll see him in September but certainly early 2022, it's got to be time. There are scouts that say he's absolutely ready right now, even defensively at least. He would be a huge asset. 
and he's going to hit. He's really a special talent, and you have to hit on him. When you're a 1-1, you, you have to be that guy. You can't just have a nice career. You can't just have a Matt Weider's career, because he was such a highly talented catcher, obviously. And he did have a nice career for sure. But you have to be better than that, a lot better than that, to be a 1-1 with all the hype surrounding him. And it's, so far, it looks like he'll be that guy. But fans are going to have to wait till 2022, I think. Okay. Last thing, we'll wrap up here. Um, when is going to be what, what day of the the year is going to be Chris Davis Day that we're reminded that the Orioles are going to be paying, sending out a check to Chris Davis every season? What like what is <laughs> the, Bobby like the, Bobby Day, uh, the Bobby yeah. Bonilla Day, the Bobby Day equivalent? When is it? Yeah, so I'm not sure the exact date of that. The okay. bigger debate right now is is he an Oriole Hall of Famer? Because I would have bet anything. Well, sure, and it's a little watered down anyway if you look at some of the names. But twice leading the majors in home runs, like that's a slam dunk. He was like cult hero status, superhero status here. And then you look at what happened after he signed that deal, and there were some historically bad, like worst ever numbers being put up. And then suddenly, like, well, then do you still belong in the Hall of Fame? Like, do we take, do, do we forget all about the good and just focus on that? Uh, do we let ourselves forget just how badly it went? And not just like a year or two, like, you know, a lot more than that. I'm very curious what happens there. And it was, it was one of the craziest, most dramatic and hardest falls I've ever seen from a player that it seemed like as soon as the ink dried on the contract, it just all went bad. And uh, it's very unfortunate that to have a guy like that who ended up getting booed all the time when there was, you know, so much love for him among in the fan base that they were chanting his name. And we want Chris after his final game before becoming a free agent and fans saying, I'll never go to another game if they don't resign him. And then they did for 161 million. And we saw how that turned out. So I'm really curious about whether he ends up in their hall of fame, man. Well, what can we check out from you across uh, the Baltimore sports media network this week? Yes, MassinSports.com, uh, School of Rock. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's something posted every every day since August 1st, 2008. I have a streak going. I blew right past Cal Ripken. Forget 2021. We're way past that now. So, uh, yes, I'm waiting to take my lap around the field when I finally break the streak. I, I always said when the day that I end up, I'm hoping Ryan Miner will go ahead and write my blog entry for me since he replaced Cal that night. I've always uh, said yeah, you were the we have... Cal Ripken of Baltimore Orioles uh, sports coverage. I've always said you, that. Which means I'm... I'm, I'm going to lose my hair, man. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, really now, it's like, all right, what do, you, what do you look forward to? What do you write about this final month? And mm. it's really just about, you know, guys like we were talking about who, who have stood out as pieces moving forward right now. What guys, you know, have, have kind of cemented that. And it's going to be a constant roster churn like it hasn't been. You can only add two guys extra on your expanded roster now it's 28 instead of 40 so there's going to be a lot of movement you try and keep up with that and uh try and find some interesting angles while fans hopefully still hang on and don't completely turn their attention to the ravens yeah i mean but i i, I i'm not sure about that i'm not sure if that's that's going to be the case the ravens can be pretty good this year Super Bowl they contender. are you can cross over too you, i mean i love the yeah. nfl I, I but i'll still cover baseball and watch that as well and have my nfl sundays or whatever i feel like they can coexist there's enough room in my heart well you got also little tua in college park you got little tua mike locksley right. doing some stuff maryland might be a right. little bit decent got some talent he's recruiting dmv pretty yeah. pretty nicely got dc coming back in a little bit with bradley beal still being around yeah no it's it's not all dire it's not all dire it isn't. <laughs> there you <laughs> go well 
You know, the minor league season runs longer this year. It's through mm-hmm. September. So you can still write about the prospects at Norfolk and Bowie and Aberdeen and Delmarva and yeah. the Florida Complex League or anywhere else you can find a prospect. Well, it's great. And, you know, it's like I, there's just so much great Baltimore Orioles coverage. Like there are so many diff- different great blogs, people like you covering the team. Like it's it's one of the most well covered of all the sports teams i i see and i tell people this i'm like the orioles just have like the best coverage i read like the reason i know more about the orioles than a lot of other mlb teams outside of my own the braves well but like is there's just so much great coverage like there's so many good blogs there's so many good writers there's so many good just people covering this team that i just i want good things for you guys it's like you and the mariners where i'm just like there's so many great mariners writers and blogs and there's so many great orioles and they just they're always bad and I just I need it to change because I want to see you guys rewarded for being for being good at covering this this franchise that cannot uh, get its act together. I appreciate it, and it is a lot more fun to cover a winning team. Though I mm. do find that my Octobers are free, and I can make more plans. So there there's that. If you try and find silver linings, I'm getting married in October. Ooh. We set that date a while ago, and I said, you know what? I'm pretty sure we'll be able to keep that wedding date. <laughs> I don't think they're going to make the playoffs, so you can plan your lives a little easier. But I'm looking forward to getting back to actually covering the postseason. Well, early congratulations. Um, I wish you the best. Thank you so much for making the time, Rock. I greatly appreciate it. And we'll have to check back in again soon. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.